0: All right, well, if you would, let's take out our Bibles and let's open up to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in chapter 16. Uh, If you're here this morning and you don't have uh, a Bible with you, I encourage you to use one uh, from the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning. um, Well, if you're using the large print as I am on page uh, seventy-three. I wonder if you've ever sat in one of our Sunday morning services, and suddenly your stomach began to growl. Maybe you didn't get a hearty breakfast this morning, and you're already beginning to feel that desire for lunch. that you don't worry. We'll be out of here by 1:30, I promise. But there is something we, we like to say when we feel hungry. We say, I'm starving. I'm starving. But of course, it is highly doubtful that any of us in this room have ever really known true starvation. It is doubtful that any of us have gone days or even weeks without food Or nutrition. But imagine yourself in the Netherlands at the end of April in 1945. Uh, The Germans had occupied the area for some time, they had blocked all supplies from coming in, and the Dutch people were in the midst of a terrible famine. It is remembered today in the Netherlands as the hunger winter. That is, the hunger winter. 4.5 million people were affected. Uh, Rations were being distributed, but over time the rations began to diminish. Uh, The amount being distributed to the people became scant. In the end, the people were living off of tulip bulbs and sugar beets. Uh, At the most severe point of the famine, people were trading in their wedding rings. They were tearing their furniture apart to have anything that they might trade for another bite to eat. And soon, people began to die. Uh, By the end of April 1945, the number was around 20,000 who had starved to death. And it appeared that many, many more were about to follow. And then we have this account from a 17 year old Dutch student. He said one could see the gunners waving in their turrets. It was a marvelous sight. One Lancaster roared over the town at 70 feet. I saw the aircraft tacking between church steeples, and it dropped its bags in the south. Everywhere we looked, bombers could be seen. No one remained inside. Everybody dared to wave cloths and flags. What a feast. Everybody was full of excited joy. 3,000 British bombers and 50 British mosquito planes crossed enemy lines, though no treaty had been signed. And rather than bringing bombs, they were bringing canned Food. They were dropping bundles after bundles of canned food from the sky. One writer says, The Dutch welcomed their liberators with open arms. Some savored their food, while others woofed it down and then vomited shortly thereafter. A few even died because their body could not handle the shock of digesting real food again. Again. But the Dutch were so filled with gratitude that they planted tulip bulbs which spelled out many thanks. Now, the Americans came to participate in this mission. And the American side of this mission was called Operation Chowhound. But it was the British side, under Winston Churchill, that came first. They originally used the name Operation Spam when they were planning the mission... But when it actually was enacted, it took the name Operation Manna. And no doubt, the prayers of many Dutch believers were answered when God worked through men to rain spam down from the sky to save their lives. Well, this morning, we come to the original account of God raining down food from the sky. And we will see here... That even in the most severe of trials, God gives his children grace. In the midst of trouble, God cares for his people. There is encouragement here. There is comfort here. And so we want to feast on the manna of God's word this morning And may our souls be hungrier than our stomachs, and may we come to this passage and be fed. So look with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 3 of Exodus 16, and let's see first the trial itself. We're going to see a trial. Verses 1 through 3, Exodus 16, what we're reading is the very word of God. They set out from Elim, remember Elim, 12 palm trees, right? Um, seven, that's not right, 12 springs, 70 palm trees, kind of a little paradise in the desert. That's Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. It's been about a month and a half since that wondrous day when the Israelites came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Um, If you'll remember, they were supposed to be making a trek towards the northeast, towards Canaan. The whole trek should have taken two weeks. Instead, it's now been six weeks, and they're not even going the right way. Uh, Rather, Moses has been leading them south. He's been leading them away from Canaan into the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. Why? Because God had told Moses some months ago through a burning bush that after Moses brought God's people out of Egypt, he was to bring them to an appointment with him at Sinai. Canaan is the final destination. The promised land is where they're ultimately headed, but it's not a a direct route. They're to go first. To meet with God at God's mountain, and they're on their way. Moses is walking in faith. He is very well aware that they are walking straight into the middle of a desert. He knows God is going to have to provide the water, and God is going to have to provide the food. Otherwise, these thousands upon thousands of Israelites are going to be in a great deal of trouble. But the people of Israel do not seem to share Moses' trust in God. When water got scarce in chapter 15 last week, right, uh, Moses prayed, but the people grumbled. But God listened to the prayers of Moses, and he provided water in the desert. And then they came upon that little paradise, that place called Elim, with abundant streams of water and palm trees. And it appears that Israel stayed there quite a while, perhaps a few weeks. I can imagine Moses using that time to bring some organization to this people of Israel. I can imagine him using this time to prepare for the, for the rest of the journey ahead. But now the journey has been renewed and soon the food begins to run out. They've come across nothing in the desert that's going to be able to provide for them. And did Israel learn her lesson from chapter 15? No. They don't go to God in prayer now. They don't say, you know what, we were thirsty and he provided, now we're hungry, he'll provide again. Ah, No, that's not what they did. They go right back to grumbling and complaining. In fact, in the Hebrew, the verb grumble appears seven times in the first five verses. This was the grumbliness, grumbling group of people who have ever grumbled, right? Uh, they are grumbling all over the place. How quickly they've begun to idealize their past. They're speaking now of Egypt as if that was the promised land. As if that was such a great place to be. Everyone sitting by meat pots, filling their bellies with as much bread as they could want. Isn't it amazing how we can take past times that were really hard and suddenly remember them as being better than they were? The good old days when we were slaves in Egypt. They're conveniently ignoring the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, Patrick Henry famously said, Give me liberty or give me death. These Israelites seem to be saying they would happily trade their liberty for food security, for a bite to eat. Moreover, the Israelites are saying, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. The very hand of God that worked their salvation and has performed umpteen miracles for them is now being blamed. For not having just gone ahead and killed them in Egypt. This is ingratitude at its best. It's outright blasphemy at its worst. And yet how often are we just like this? How often are we quick to forget the amazing work that God has done for us. In saving our souls. In making us a new creation. How quick we are to find ourselves angry at God, bitter with God, impatient towards God, because He isn't giving us what we think we need right now. Even though He gives us the very breath that's in our lungs. We also ought to repent of our moments of ingratitude. Our moments of discontent towards God. Well, the lessons. Sorry, in verses four through eight, we see a lesson about leadership. Okay, so verses four through eight, a lesson about leadership. So look at verses four through eight with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not." And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So God speaks to Moses. And God reveals that he is going to provide for this people yet again. And he's going to provide in a miraculous way. He's going to rain down bread from the sky. Now, Mount Hermon, just take a moment and think about that. Because I know that pretty much all of us in this room have heard this story before. And there's something about having heard it before that maybe makes it seem a little less amazing, a little less wonderful but can you imagine waking up each morning and finding the ground covered in thin wafers of bread? Instead of snowflakes falling gently to the ground, can you imagine looking outside of your tent at night in the desert and just seeing these these flakes against the moonlight of bread falling to the ground? And yet this is what God is going to do for His people. Yet God's main concern is for the souls of this people. Uh, Even as he provides for their bodies, he's going to give instructions to Israel to help them discover their lack of faith, to help them discover their need to humble themselves before him. He is at work to help the Israelites see their need to truly learn to trust him. He tells Moses that through the manna, he's going to test the people. He's going to, to give them another opportunity to show whether they will walk in his ways or not. And next time, we will look more at that test that God brings about through the manna. But what we also see in this passage is that those who seek to lead on behalf of God will often find themselves the targets of people's anger. You see, these people were upset with God. But who was getting the phone calls? <laughs> these people were upset with God. But who was hearing the, the grumbling? Who was getting the constant knocks on their tent doors? It was Moses. and It was Aaron. So also, if, if you desire to be a leader in any way, You must know that leadership comes with a cost. All of us who are believers are Christ's sheep. But as any shepherd can tell you, sheep can bite. And we all bite from time to time, don't we? Sheep can kick. Sheep can be slow to obey. Sheep can be slow to do even what's in their own best interest. I continue to pray, and I hope you continue to pray with me, that God will raise up future pastors from this congregation. And I pray that God will raise up future missionaries from among us. And I continue to say that pastoring is the greatest job in the world. I can think of no higher privilege than the opportunity to speak for God to men. It's a thrill to be in ministry. But I want those who would consider leading God's people in any form to move forward with their eyes wide open. People will hurt you. People will disappoint you. People will ignore your counsel and then blame you when things go wrong. People will get mad at you simply for communicating the message that God has given you to communicate. Anybody that wants to be a leader in any way in the church of God must ask this question. Am I willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? All of us will experience this in some degree or another. We should not be surprised when it happens. We're all in good company because the best saints of God, men like Moses, walked through this as well. Oh, I wonder what Moses' approval ratings were at this point in Israel's history, right? Surely no one has known more of the grumbling and anger of human hearts than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus hears from us grumbling all the time. And yet He loves us, and He is patient, and He shepherds us willingly. We have our example in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have. What a tender shepherd we have. Well, in verses 9 through 15, we see two ways that God gives grace to His people in the midst of trials, okay? So verses 9 through 15, two ways that God gives grace to his people as they walk through trials. So if you're here this morning, you're walking through a trial, hear this. Verses 9 and 10, we're going to see the grace of God's presence. In verses 11 through 15, we're going to see the grace of his daily provision. 9 and 10, his presence. 11 through 15, his daily provision provision. Look with me beginning in verse 9, verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, "Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling." And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am the I am your God. For That's what capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's what that word means. I am, I am the I am your God. In the evening, quail, quail. Came up and and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a a fine flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? Never a good sign with your food, is it? (laughs) What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So first note, verses 9 and 10, the grace of God's presence. Uh, we're told here that, that the people uh, look toward the wilderness and the glory of the Lord appear to them in a cloud. Uh, God is always present everywhere. But sometimes God makes his, his special presence known. In this case, he may have used brilliance. He may have used a bright, blinding light. Or in this case, he may have used dark clouds with fiery hues as if a a brilliant, fiery explosion was happening in the clouds. But whatever it was, however it appeared, there was suddenly no doubt to the people of Israel that God was with them. This served as a warning to their unbelief. It was a a comfort. It was a clear sign to them that the God who had rescued them out of Egypt was not now forsaking them. He is with them. Mount Hermon, for those of us who know and love God, what can be more comforting or encouraging to us in the midst of trials than to know that our God is with us? We have the knowledge of God's presence because we believe our Bibles. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I don't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Uh, We said it this morning, Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Why will I fear no evil in the shadow of death because I have the grace of God's presence Matthew 28:20 20, last verse of that gospel and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age There is simply no such thing as a Christian who is alone That that thing doesn't exist There is no such thing as a Christian who is alone. Our God is with us at all times and in the midst of every circumstance. But not only do we have the knowledge of God's presence because we believe our Bibles, sometimes, like here with the Israelites, God allows us to have the experience of His presence. That is, there's suddenly a a felt sense of God's presence. This is what we love as Christians. (laughs) This is what we long for, more of experiencing God's presence. In the midst of our trials, we do best not to seek answers. We do best to seek God himself. In the midst of our trials, trying to figure out why is God doing this to me? What is he up to? Why is this happening to me? There's no comfort there. Your comfort is found not in seeking answers, but in seeking the presence of God. God, are you with me here in this trial? Help me to sense, help me to know that even though this is a scary storm I'm walking through, I am safe and secure in your hands. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A.W. Tozer says, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire for God. They mourned for Him. They prayed, and they wrestled, and they sought for Him, day and night, in season, out of season. And when they had found Him, the finding was all the the sweeter for the long-seeking you know what it is to long for and to seek after the experience of God's presence in the midst of whatever's happening in your life right now. How does God give us the experience of his presence? Sometimes we experience him in the midst of a thunderstorm or a a summer breeze. Sometimes we get a sense of God's presence as we stare up at the night sky and, and see the stars often we experience God's presence as we think about some verse of the Bible and we meditate on it. As we think about God as our Father, or God as our rock, or God as our refuge, or God as our fortress, and as the Spirit helps us to believe that verse, there's a warmth that comes up in the soul of the Christian as if the arms of the Father were wrapping around us. And as we believe what that verse says, we begin to experience the very presence of God. That is a grace in the midst of trial. Experiencing God's presence in a felt way is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 63, David was longing for the presence of God, which he had known when he was in God's house. We too can often find refreshing experiences with God here in God's house as we meet together, as we sing together, as we seek God's presence together here, wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, there he is with us in special presence. This very moment, you are in the holy of holies of the temple. God's special presence is here, whether you feel it or not, because the Bible says it. But we should pray that we would feel it. We should pray that we would know it and sense it. We are in the wilderness. And we have many obstacles ahead of us in our lives. Canaan's ahead. The great promised land, that's ahead for us. But as we go on this journey through the wilderness, we have the presence of God to comfort us along the way. And by the way, one token of his presence along the way is what we're about to do. And then we see, secondly, the grace of God's daily provision. The grace of God's daily provision. Isn't it interesting that God is not going to give Israel everything they need for the whole journey all at one time, right? He doesn't just deluge them with a flood of bread and say, hold on to it for a while. This should, this should serve you for several weeks at least. It's not what he does. Instead, God says, I'm going to meet your daily need. Uh, This was to teach Israel to trust him each new day. Uh, This is something we have to learn. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to say, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And many people believe that's an allusion to this passage. That's a reference to the daily manna that Israel had to count on all through their years in the wilderness. Mount Hermon, you may have anxieties about what's ahead for you. You may be walking through financial struggles or relationship struggles, worries about your future security. But let me ask you, as you're worried about all of that stuff for the future, for tomorrow and the day after that, just ask yourself this question. Has God cared for you today? Has God provided what you need for today? Do you have something to eat today? Do you have clothes on your back and a place to lay your head tonight? Do you have people around you who care about you? Do you have the promise that God is going to be with you and sustain you? Friends, God has never promised that he is going to solve all your problems at once. He has promised that he will daily provide for you the grace that you need for that day. And He will continue to give you the grace you need for each new day until the day He brings you to that place where you will have no more daily needs because you will be perfect and living in His presence forever. In the case of the Israelites, God met the immediate needs of the people with a flock of quail that fell dead to the ground. That's, how's that for a trip, a hunting trip, right? You go with your guns and you're ready and then they just they just all fall to the ground. Perhaps God continued to bring quail from time to time. We will see him bring quail again later. But the following morning is when the daily ration of bread began. Uh, Each and every day, God would rain down manna from heaven to feed the people. And let me close this morning by just making a few points about this manna, and then we'll pick it up next week. Uh, Three points about the manna. Number one, this manna was journey bread. It was journey bread. It was bread, probably in the form of flaky wafers, given to sustain the people of Israel on their journey. Look down at verse 31 for a minute. We have a description. Verse 31. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So, uh, coriander seed is uh, the seed of cilantro. Makes me think of the salsa at San Jose's because they use lots of cilantro in there. Now I've made you hungry again, I'm sorry. Um, It's interesting that we're told that it tasted like honey. Remember where they're going. (laughs) They've been told, I'm taking you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Honey when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush about Canaan, this was how he described it. So it's almost as if each daily dose of manna was a little appetizer. Just a, a tiny little sweet appetizer of the great feast to come when they would reach the promised land. It was food for the journey to sustain them, but it was also a pledge of what was to come. And the last verse of our chapter tells us that they would eat this bread the entire 40 years in the wilderness until they made it into the promised land, and on the day they entered the promised land, the manna stopped because they had reached the land flowing with milk and honey. Is not the Lord's Supper the same for us in our journey? (laughs) Is not this a remembrance bread to sustain us Until we reach heaven. We believe according to the book of Revelation. That there's going to be a day when we get to experience the great wedding feast. With our bridegroom. With our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're going to experience the glory of that wedding feast. But we're not there yet. But this is a little token of that. As we take the symbols of his bread and his body. We're taking these pledges of his love. Reminding us the wedding feast is coming. The wedding feast is coming. Persevere. Second, very quickly, manna was heavenly bread. Manna was heavenly bread. This is a little mysterious. But listen to how Psalm 78 celebrates this gift of manna. The psalmist says there, He gave a command to the skies above. He opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Yes, Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. The bread of angels is how manna is described in Psalm 78. What do you think about that? It couldn't literally be angels' bread because angels are spirits. Angels don't in their proper form have a physical body like you or me. Angels don't eat right? Angels don't have physical food. So probably, this is a poetic way of saying that this was food from heaven where the angels dwell. Or some argue it means that actually God worked through angels to bring the bread to the people of Israel. That angels were involved in this work. Whatever it means, it tells us that this was something special. There's a reason in verse 15 we read, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They'd never seen this food before. In this case, the reason they didn't recognize it was it was, it was foreign to them. In fact, the ancient word that they used when they looked at it and said, what is it? Is the word manna, which we in the South call manna. Right, But it's the ancient word manna. And so that's how it got its name. Manna literally means, what is it? And then third, manna was gospel bread. Manna was gospel bread. For just as God provided from heaven what the physical bodies needed, this was also teaching us that God would provide from heaven what our souls so greatly need. In John 6, after Jesus has just performed the miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish, we read of an exchange between the people and Jesus. And they came to Jesus and they said, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? They're asking for a sign and he just multiplied The fish and the loaves. But that wasn't enough for them. We want another sign. What work do you perform? Oh, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They say, Jesus, this is great what you're doing. If you really want us to believe, show us another trick. And here's the trick we have in mind. Just as in the Old Testament, manna came down from the sky, you do that. We want some of that manna. Show us us how that works. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me. Shall never thirst. All humanity is hungry, like the hungry Israelites in the desert. All humanity is a starving people, like the people of the Netherlands in World War II. If help doesn't come to us, we perish. If God doesn't provide from heaven, our sins will kill us and we will be damned to hell forever. We are in trouble. God sent from heaven the bread of life. This was the ultimate Operation Manna when Jesus Christ came to earth as a baby to be for us all that we needed in his 33 years of perfect living and then took our sins on his shoulder and went to the cross that all who would believe on him would be saved. And so I simply say to you this morning, as God was trying to teach Israel back in Exodus 16, will you trust him? Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ and know what it means to have the grace of his presence and the grace of his daily provision forever until he brings you to himself in heaven? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.